Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. Uh, it's great to be back in front of you once again as we continue in our series uh, in the book of Daniel. And today we're going to be covering Daniel chapter 5. Now, for those of you who may be just tuning in, in these four chapters we've already covered, uh, kind of the larger idea is we're looking at God's people as they are exiles in a foreign land. And while they're exiles, they are experiencing uh, some things about the current leadership that's in the land that is counterintuitive to their religion, to their traditions, to their culture, and even in many cases to their own well-being. And what we want to learn from our uh, kind of excursion through the book of Daniel is how do we live faithfully even in a fallen world? And so... Uh, before we uh, get into today's word, I do want to pray for us for just a moment. Um, Father God, we thank you and praise you that you are the sovereign God and you continue to uh, strike that note over and over again in the book of Daniel for us. And I pray, oh God, that that would sink down into our lives deeply and become a part of our operating rhythm. Uh, open, Lord God, the pages of scripture. Open our eyes to your great truths. Open our ears, O God, and open our hearts, Heavenly Father, that we would be fully receptive of what you have to say uh, to us this morning. Uh, this is our prayer in the matchless and holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, again, if you're just dialing in, we're now picking up on chapter 5. And if you've read Daniel chapter 5, you may feel for uh, just a moment that it's a little bit anticlimactic because it seems like just a reboot of the previous four chapters, but with some subtle changes in characters. You see, Daniel chapter five picks up with telling us the story of Belshazzar, who is the son of Nebuchadnezzar, the king who was featured in the previous four chapters. And Belshazzar, just like Nebuchadnezzar, uh, was living the high life. And then the high life is interrupted by this uh, mysterious message. For Nebuchadnezzar, it was a mysterious dream that he could not interpret, and nor could his cast of astrologers and magicians and encanters and etc. And now you have his son, Belshazzar, who in the course of living his life encounters a uh, uh, a nondescript uh, or unclear message that is brought in by this mysterious hand that is writing on the wall. And as you might have noted from the previous chapters, then there is a call for one of God's people, that is Daniel, to come in and provide an interpretation, right? Sounds very familiar to our previous chapters. And uh, Daniel is able to successfully interpret the message that has been indeed delivered by God. And that message has a judicial element. Uh, it is a judgment raised against or a, a correct or conviction that is raised against the current King Belshazzar. Well, what's the big difference? Why did the Bible feel the need to tell us what seems to be a reboot of the previous four chapters once again in this concise fifth chapter? Well, there is one particular verse or phrase or maybe a passage that I believe should prick our hearts or maybe cause our antennas uh, to perk up just a little bit. And I want to read that passage for you uh, because it's found in Daniel chapter 5 as early as verse 18, and it will take us down through verse 22. L listen to these words uh, carefully. This is Daniel speaking to Belshazzar. And here's one of the fundamental differences found in Daniel 5 that I believe makes it necessary and distinct from the previous four chapters. It says, O king, the most high God gave 
Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of these great, because of his greatness, he gave him all peoples, nations and languages trembled uh, before him and feared him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive, and whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit uh, was hardened, so uh, he dealt proudly, and he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, right? No new information just yet. Hang on, it's coming. And his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. No new information yet, but here it comes. Verse 22, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart though you knew all this. This is the pivotal difference between Daniel chapter five and the previous four chapters that I want us to pay particular attention to where Daniel says, all of these things that happened to your father, Nebuchadnezzar, you knew them, but you did not humble your heart before God in response to them. When I think about this passage, I'm thought to, well, I'm actually brought to think a little bit about myself and how it is that there can be this um, tension or gap between what I know and how I respond to what I know. How many of you, just by I don't know, show of hands or maybe on the keyboard or a thumbs up, how many of you at your home right now uh, keep the owner's manuals to maybe some of the electronics or products, maybe a table or, or something that you've had to assemble or put together? How many of you, right? Uh, give me a thumbs up. How many of you would say uh, you, you keep, you have at least five, four or five owner's manuals? You've got greater than four or five. Uh, just kind of, you know, give me a thumbs up. How many people have more than 10? Anybody? Who's got more than 20? Anybody? 30, right? Getting close to hoarders and pack rats. Just kidding. I would say, I would say in the kitchen drawer, one of my kitchen drawers, I probably have upwards of 40 to 50 different owner's manuals. Uh, uh, not because I don't believe in throwing things away, but because I recognize that probably one day something will go wrong with one of these pieces of electronics or products that I have assembled and we have in our home, and I'll need to reference it to know what to do. But what's interesting about my um, discipline of keeping up with these owner's manuals is that it is rare that I read them first. You see, I am very confident that those owner's manuals include true information. As a matter of fact, with every fiber of my being, I believe that the owner's manual's words, descriptions, definitions, processes, and instructions are absolutely true. There is no doubt in my mind. I don't believe that the owners and the manufacturers and engineers of the various products that I have in my home are trying to scam me. I really do believe that the information in those manuals are true. As a matter of fact, I know that it's true. I know that it's true. But knowing that it's true still doesn't translate to me using those manuals in the process of putting some of those things together. Why is that? 
Well, number one, I believe that I'm smart enough to put things together without having to read step-by-step instructions. And then number two, I guess to my own shame and discredit, I have undervalued, while I do value the owner's manual, I have undervalued its contribution to my life. What do I mean? I think all of you can probably identify with maybe having put something together and it looks exactly like the picture, except it's slightly dysfunctional. You see, one of the things that we forsake and we forget about the owner's manual is not only is its information true in a very static way, but it provides a crucial, um, a, a crucial element, and that is it shows us not only what is, but how it all fits together in practical ways to make it more functional. I believe that for many of us, if we're not careful, we can participate in Belshazzar's same sin. You see, our faith sometimes features elements that we feel 100% uh, 100 confident that they are true, that they are effective, that they are functional. But those principles are kind of like these manuals that we have tucked away in these drawers in our home. We only reference them when something goes wrong. And that's the incorrect approach when it comes to the truth of God. You see here, Belshazzar is called to account that the things that he knows, he hasn't humbled himself to actually use them. And I want to say this to you today, that, that we have a responsibility to take what we know to be true about our Lord and to translate it into everyday practical life. We have a responsibility, we must, we are called to take what we know to be true about our Lord and translate that into daily practical life. Belshazzar's miss in this moment and his distinction from his father was that the things that he knew to be true, that God is the most high, that it is God who is sovereign and puts kings in place and takes them down, that it is the one true God who can unpack mysteries and the one true God who is holy and he is above all of the gods. He knew those things to be true, but they didn't translate to the way that he ruled and the way that he lived on a daily basis. And whenever we neglect to take the things that we know to be true and translate them into daily life. It produces an opportunity for idolatry, which we'll see in Belshazzar's life, anxiety, which we'll see in Belshazzar's life, and also a false sense of security, which we will also find in Belshazzar's life. Throughout today's story, you might find yourself feeling a little bit like Daniel, but for the most part, I hope we'll look carefully and be able to try on a new set of shoes and maybe just for a moment, see how some of our tendencies might align with Belshazzar. If you got your Bibles with you, let's go ahead and begin to unpack a couple of these ideas and how it is that we should take what we know to be true about the Lord and translate it into our daily and practical lives. When we look at Daniel chapter 5 and the first four verses, the scriptures find it necessary to introduce us to Belshazzar at the height of his kingship. He's having a great time. The Bible says in verse 1, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine uh, in front of the thousand. 
Now, if he made a feast or a party for the a thousand of his lords, you kind of got to think like a thousand of his lords with their respective plus ones, maybe some hired entertainment that they had, the wait staff. I mean, this is a party of epic proportions, right? This thing is off the chain, as some of you say, depending on your generation, or oh, it's lit uh, or whatever. Uh, but whatever the case may be, this is a big occasion. And this is where the Bible introduces us to Belshazzar. So here it is that the Lord's drank wine and he drank wine in front of a thousand. And then Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought and that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. This was a big mistake. Then verse three. Uh, then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple of the house of God in Jerusalem and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them and they drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and of silver and of bronze and of iron and of wood and of stone. Verse four really underscores one of the great gaps in Belshazzar's lack of ability to translate what he knew to be true from his father's life, that the one true high, holy, sovereign God who brings king in and out of office, he failed to translate that into a way that he is living right now at a practical and daily level. Uh, first and foremost, the holy vessels brought from God's temple that his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken were uniquely designed for the lips of priests and others who would conduct the daily sacrifices before the Lord. Uh, offerings of peace and wave offerings, offerings of thanksgiving would often uh, take these cups and they would pour a, a hen of wine over these offerings as a sweet smelling savor to God. But I can tell you here that based on what Belshazzar has done, that nothing of what they're doing in this moment is a sweet smelling savor to God. It is actually a stench in the nostrils of God, which calls us to pay attention to what happened in the very next verse where it says, and immediately there was a hand that appeared and began to write some words on the wall that we'll get to in just a moment. But the first thing that I want us to focus on when it comes to taking what we know about the Lord and translating it into daily life, because Belshazzar knew the necessary truths to prevent this moment of idolatry. It's this. I want us to recognize that just like Belshazzar, that in our lives, too, that when life is going our way, our awareness of our need for God seems to go away. I'll say that again. When life is going our way. It seems to lower uh, or, or to lessen our sense of need for God. Like our need for God seems to go away when life is going our way. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt like you had the quote unquote Midas touch? Maybe your stock portfolio is trending up. Your children are settling down. You're moving up on the job. Everything is working according to plan. I mean, there's just a nice little sequence of successes that are happening in your life. That's exactly what's happening in Belshazzar life. And this season of life where things are going his way, it's obvious that his awareness of his need for God has completely gone away. This isn't just Belshazzar's problem. It's one of our default tendencies as well as fallen people. But we have a responsibility to respond differently as believers. And here's why. You see, Belshazzar found himself have, uh, operating in a very gross act of idolatry. It says that not only was there this sacrilege of taking the sacred items from the temple and then using them to drink uh, from during his big fancy party, but it also says that they turned around and they worshiped the gods of silver and gold and of wood and of bronze. 
Now what's interesting about that is the modern day person, uh, believers in particular, probably feel relatively safeguarded from participating in these kinds of gross acts of sacrilege and idolatry. But I wanna raise your attention to this reality, that when things are going good and our sense of need for God seems to be going away because life is going our way, idolatry can very cleverly creep in even into the life of contemporary believers. And here's how. You see, the kernel of truth, the DNA of idolatry is three things. I'll say this, it's misplaced faith, replaced faith, and then also what I would call a displaced uh, hope. Whenever those things are at work, you, you may not be bowing down to gold cups. You may not be calling on the names of other gods. You may not be uh, praying to the dollar bill or anything like that. But I'm going to tell you, if you've got a misplaced faith, a replaced faith, or even a displaced hope in this current season or at any season in your life, you are on the cusp or either actively in and up to your neck in idolatry. Because when we look at the life of Belshazzar, again, don't be thrown off by the obvious acts of sacrilege, but I want you to look at your own life and how you and I might participate in these acts of misplaced faith. You see, Belshazzar knew who the one true God was, but he didn't place his faith in him. There's, he was still placing faith in these other gods. Now, it doesn't mean that he was dismissive or, or, or ignorant of the existence of God, He's, he's, he's obviously fully aware of the existence of all other gods because they are bowing down to them. This moment reminds me very much of Paul's visit to Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, where he walks in and he says, I behold that you are a very superstitious people. And he looks at all of the altars that they have set up so that they don't miss out on God. They place their faith in a variety of different gods or they misplace their faith in a variety of different gods. And Paul says to this open altar, to the unknown God, this is who I want to formally introduce you to. I believe that one of the most common forms of idolatry that can creep into the lives of contemporary and modern believers today is misplaced faith. It's misplaced faith. That is where we place faith in a lot of different things, not recognizing that there should only that faith should be placed only in one thing, and that's God. I believe that not only does misplaced faith represent one of the most common enigmas for modern believers who fail to translate the truth of the Lord into their daily living, but I also believe that replaced faith is one of those causes of idolatry for us in the modern day. You see, where misplaced faith puts it in a variety of different things, hopefully that we don't miss God and we can try to cover all the bases, I believe that replaced faith, that is where we have replaced our need for God with a ton of other things in our lives that seem to be holding us up and making life go just okay. But I also believe that there's another risk, which is what I would call displaced hope. Displaced hope. That is resting in something other than God's work to bring us a sense of hope and to let us know that everything is okay. Can I come to you for just a moment? I want to ask you a question. If what happened on Tuesday brought you more or less hope than what happened at Calvary, you might be operating under a little bit of displaced faith or misplaced faith or even replaced hope. I'll say it again. If what happened on Super Tuesday and the corresponding results that came out of it caused your hope in this life to go up or down, if what happened on Tuesday either increased 
or decrease your faith. More so than what happened at Calvary, you might have a displaced hope. And I want to caution us. It doesn't mean you can't be excited or whatever, or maybe feel somewhat disappointed if your candidate did or did not win. But there needs to be regular faith and hope checkups that are happening in our lives to make sure that we are not uh, uh, ebbing toward or subtly moving toward contemporary forms of idolatry. Because our faith and hope should rest exclusively in the most high God and not in the circumstances of, of how favorably or unfavorably things are happening in our particular day. Jesus cautioned of this same thing here in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. Listen to this story that he told his disciples. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? Uh, for I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? And so is the one, so is the one, that's me and you. So is the one who lays up treasure for themselves and, uh, and is not rich toward God. This is also the story of Belshazzar. Living the high life, life is going his way and therefore his sense of need for God has gone away. We must safeguard our hearts against this same sin. While we may never again disparage the name of God in the way that Belshazzar does, we can very cleverly get caught up in misplacing our faith or displacing our hope in the same way that Belshazzar does. So we can do this. And I want us to, to hear this very carefully. The blessings that we experience in this life when things are going great, the blessings that we have should build a case for the goodness of God and not build a barn that blinds us to my need for God. I'll say it again. The blessings that we have in this life should be constantly building a case for the goodness of God. James says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights or the father of heaven. And he precedes that statement by being says, do not be deceived. So when we're being blessed, there is a, a deception opportunity. Don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes from the father of heaven, comes down from the father of lights. And so when we are being blessed, those blessings should be building a case for our increased faith in God, not building barns that seemingly insulate us from our perceived need for God. This is the sin of Belshazzar and it's the sin of many today. And it can also be my sin when life appears to be going my way. Again, I don't know what, how you felt about what happened on this past Tuesday, but if it's going your way, I want you to be very careful about how that impacts your hope. Because if Tuesday has a greater impact on your hope than Calvary did, that may be a problem. You may be tiptoeing into a little bit of idolatry. And that whether, whether or not Tuesday had a negative impact or positive impact, your hope should rest in something a little bit more permanent than Super Tuesday. So Belshazzar gives us this, or the Bible gives us this glimpse into Belshazzar's life in this brief moment. We don't know how long it lasts, but this brief moment in which life is going his way and his dependency upon the one true God seemingly has gone away until there is this swift interruption. Look at your Bibles. 
right here in verse five, the Bible wants us to know that that God's response was really quick this time. Right. Uh, What took four chapters previously is now only taking one chapter in this one, because in verse five, it says immediately the fingers of a human hand uh, wrote on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw uh, the hand as it wrote and the king's color changed. He got pale. Right. Uh, Or maybe he got red in the face, blue. Who knows? Right. His color changed. And his thoughts uh, alarmed him and his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring in who else besides the cast of encanters, Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows him uh, uh, what it means. What is he going to do? He's going to put gold on their neck and he's going to give them a position where they'll be the third highest in the kingdom. And just like in the previous chapters, this cast of encanters or enchanters and astrologers and wise men that he's drawn to himself and his his within arm's reach there, they cannot interpret the vision or they cannot interpret the handwriting on the wall. And so it's the queen who comes in subsequently and says, guess what? There is someone and listen to these words. There is someone in the kingdom who can do this. And it says in verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the kings and his lords, came into the banquet hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, plural. I, I, I want you to see that distinction. In whom is the spirit of the holy gods, suggesting that while they again recognize that the work that God has historically done through Daniel is great work and it's godly work. It's not the exclusive work that they need to be dependent on, because why are they still vested in other gods? Plural. Follow the story carefully, because the next big idea I want you to grab hold is this. Not only when life is going our way, uh, is our awareness uh, of our need for God seemingly going away? But there's something else. When our life is interrupted, we need the right people around us to interpret it. When our life is radically interrupted, we need the right people around us to effectively interpret it. Maybe some of you who came out of Super Tuesday feel elated about what's happening. You've already seen my word of caution there, but maybe there are others of you who feel deflated by what is happening. And here's my word of caution for you here. You see, when our life is interrupted, we need the right people around us to interpret it. Well, who are the right people? Who are those right people to step into our lives and speak the things that we need to hear? Not just what we need to hear for to comfort our own souls, but the things that we need to hear that represent truth and the voice of God. I I love what the queen says. Hey, hey, don't 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 fear. Don't fret. Don't be moved with anxiety. There's somebody here who can interpret this enigma. And and I love this. And, And I believe that the queen and both her commentary about Daniel and him being filled with the spirit of the gods. Uh, as well as some other comments here in the same section of scripture, give us some key details as to the kind of people that we need in our life to help us interpret things when our life is being radically interrupted by certain things. You ready? Well, these are the distinctives that Daniel obviously possesses. In verse 11, uh, we are told that we need people around us who are filled with the spirit. We need people like Daniel in our lives who are filled with the spirit. Maybe you and I should, would, would become that person to someone else, but we also need those other kind of people around us. Well, what do spirit filled people look like? Well, if you follow the word, Jesus says, my words are life and they are spirit. We need people who are filled with the word. We need people that know the word of God. 
God around us all the time. Uh, Psalm one tells us that blessed is a man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, right? Or, or stands in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And he meditates on it day and night. We need people who are spirit filled. And one of the first distinctives of people who are spirit filled are people who are full of God's word. But not only that, we also need people who are committed to witnessing and have a lifestyle of witnessing and worship. I'll give you these distinctives. A spirit-filled person is typically one who is filled with the word, has a lifestyle of worship, a lifestyle of working for the kingdom, not necessarily full-time ministry involved people, but a lifestyle in the word, a lifestyle of worship, a lifestyle of witnessing and sharing the gospel. Cause that takes a certain kind of person that has been gripped by the reality of God, right? And they don't suppress the opportunities to share the gospel gripped by the word or filled with the word, filled with the commitment to witness a lifestyle of worship. That isn't just worshiping God on their favorite or one, two, one or two days a week uh, in the sanctuary. Right. But also a person who's committed to the work of God. That's the profile that Daniel gave us. He was a person that was committed to kingdom work. We need spirit filled people. We need Daniels in our lives. And why do we want spirit filled people like Daniel in our lives? Because of this next distinctive that we find in verse 17. You see, in verse 17, Belshazzar says to Daniel, man, if you can interpret this handwriting on the wall, this mysterious message, I will clothe you with purple and I'll clothe you with gold and I'll make you the third highest in the kingdom. And Belshazzar says, keep your gifts and give them to someone else. I don't need them. This is the second distinctive of the kind of people that we need to help us and speak into our lives and to interpret life when something is interrupting the normal flow of life. We need people who are not phased by any favors that they would receive from us. We don't want people who are only around us based on what we can do for them. And that's who Daniel was. He wasn't afraid to, 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 to speak those things that need to be spoken. He was filled with the spirit and he was not phased by any favor that Belshazzar could offer. There's a third distinctive that the Bible gives us, and I don't want you to miss this because we also need people who, according to verse 22, are not afraid to speak the truth. We've already seen a little sneak preview of verse 22, but I want to show it to you again. Here is Daniel standing before a king who has uh, the capacity to end his life or radically interrupt his life, and he says, listen, your father, until he knew the most high God, uh, rules in the kingdom of mankind and sets, whom, sets it over whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord God of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You know what I find interesting about this? This, this tendency of Daniel to speak truth to power or to speak truth to anybody, he's not afraid to speak the truth, is this is exactly the kind of people we need around us. We need these people around us all the time. Uh, and, but if you know what, our default setting is to surround ourselves with people who would actually just agree with us. I gotta be honest with you, if both in the toughest and in the greatest and the most amicable of times in your life, all you have around you are people who constantly agree with you, you might need to revisit your social circle and your friend group. I'm not saying you have to expel anybody, but you need to include some more people. You need people who are filled with the spirit, who are not phased by any uh, uh, favor that you might be able to offer or they gain, and people who have no fear of speaking the truth to you. We need that. We, and these are the kinds of people that can help us navigate and to interpret 
tough times when life throws at us something that is deeply disappointing in our lives. Uh, look at this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, why this is all the more important. The Bible anticipates these kinds of moments here in the New Testament. It says, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears and will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Listen, we need people who are willing to speak the truth and not just people who are going to confirm our biases. Believers need to constantly vet the voices that we allow to speak into our lives so that we can avoid what today is known as confirmation bias. Listen, as a result of the outcome of the elections, there'll be many different conspiracy theories and many raw opinions and raw emotions that are taking place. And it'll be so easy for us to group together ourselves, people who will offer a high level of confirmation bias. That is people who already agree with all of our critiques and the way that we think, and they won't raise and elevate our thinking to focus on the fundamental truths of the most high God who is sovereign and puts in rule whoever he chooses. These are the fundamental truths that Belshazzar knew, but he didn't let them translate into the daily way that he lived. This cannot be our sin. We want to avoid this at all costs. And one of the ways is to pack our lives with spirit-filled people who don't want any favors, who are willing to speak the truth, even if that truth falls in a way that doesn't make us feel great about our current positions and opinions. This is so crucial for us. Well, there's a third truth in today's story that I believe that we need to borrow from or to incorporate in our daily lives in order to be people who can live in a fallen world, but live faithfully in that fallen world. Uh, when you're looking at verses 18 through 22, it is Daniel who interprets for Belshazzar the handwriting that is on the wall. And we want to take a close look at this interpretation. So uh, picking up here, uh, really right around verses, um, uh, verse 24, uh, Belshazzar says this, this uh, then from the presence, uh, then from his presence, talking about the one true and most high God, then from his presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, mene, mene, teko, parasin. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then Belshazzar gave command, gave the command, and Daniel was clothed in purple, uh, with purple, and a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And look at verse 30. That very night, almost immediately again, that very night, Belshazzar, um, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Something very interesting about this is not only do we need to be cautious of when life is going our way and our need for God seems to go away. Not only should we be careful about who we incorporate in our lives because when life is interrupted, we need people around us who can help us to interpret what's happening, but we also need to do this. And this is what Belshazzar didn't do and we must do. When we see others going through challenges, take note of how God is changing them. Belshazzar failed fundamentally in this regard. 
God was giving him a live and active lesson right in his own home of the fact that he was the most high sovereign God who distributes kingdoms on his own accord. You see that this was a this was a a classroom being conducted as close as he could possibly get. And I say to you this, that when we see people going through challenges in our lives, this is the third point. Final point. When we see people going through challenges, we need to look carefully and take note at how God is changing them and what he is saying about himself. You see, uh, God expects us to learn from the experiences of others. And the New Testament puts it to us this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers who were under the cloud all passed through the sea. Talking about the ancient Israelites to uh, the Corinthians, right? Passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. And they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with as with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down uh, to eat and they rose up to drink and play. The Bible clearly says that the Lord expects us to look at the examples of what he has done in past lives, whether it is a, 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 a jubilant result or whether it was judgmental results. The Lord expects us to learn from the experiences and the examples of others around us. And so when we see people going through challenges, take note of how the Lord is changing them or how the Lord is challenging him. And what is the Lord saying about his own self? This is what Belshazzar didn't do. And this is something that we must do. Well, when we look at this, I want to show you that that what, what we can learn directly from Belshazzar and also the handwriting on the wall is we can see in the handwriting on the wall, actually what I would call a preview or a prelude to the gospel itself. It's a message that God is saying to everyone by some indirect way. He's directly saying it to Belshazzar, but to us, I want you to note the words that were written on the wall. Your days or the days of, of your kingdom are numbered. The Bible tells us in Psalm 90:12 that we ought to number our days that we might apply our hearts to wisdom. That is, recognize the brevity of our human life and in that brevity not be moved to anxiety, but become wise unto salvation. What must I do about the fact that I'm brief? I need to reach out to the one true, awesome, loving, and eternal God. Well, the Bible not only tells us that Belshazzar's days were numbered, but it says tekel. It says your, your sins have been measured We also in the gospel are confronted with the fact that not only are our days numbered, but our sins have been measured, that God has seen us for who we really are. And and just like Romans chapter three, verse 23, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. This isn't just Belshazzar's message. It's the handwriting on the wall for us. And so because all of our sins have been seen and we've fallen short of the glory of God, we are called to earnestly pursue forgiveness. God doesn't want our knees to knock. He wants our knees to bow to him and to seek him and to pursue him as we grab hold of this reality of how brief our life is and how clear our sins are before him. But then in the final handwriting on the wall, he says, Parasin, he says, our reign is limited. In other words, all of us are ruling and reigning. Outside of Christ, we're ruling, reigning, and running our lives and enjoying ourselves just like Belshazzar. All of us are in some way. We have become the king of our own hearts and we are running life 
steering, the, the, we're, we're steering and commanding and, and doing everything that we want to do in many regards. But we need fresh reminders of the fact that there is one true king. And no matter how much control we currently feel like we have, that is one true king that's really in control. And Revelation chapter one, verses five through seven gives us a beautiful picture, not of a Persian king that's going to come over and take over our kingdom, but of a precious king who is Christ. It says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. We need to know that another king is coming. And this is a message that is encapsulated in the gospel. Our sins are clear and measured and we've been found wanting. Another king is really coming and that our days are numbered. But none of those handwriting on the wall are intended to make us shudder or move with anxiety, but cause us to move with faith toward God and Christ. I want you to hear this, that, that, that as we look out today, we don't know what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks, but I want you to know this, whether your guy or not won the election. Here's what you need to know is that the weakness of every one of our leaders is a witness of their own need for Christ and our national need for Christ. The weakness of every leader is an announcement and a witness of their need for Christ and also our need for Christ nationally, but also the prowess of every leader is a potential blind spot to their need for Christ. I want you to notice how Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar at points in their lives were lifted up and their current prowess served as blind spots to their need. So all of our civic and national leaders at every single level have some kind of blind spot. They have some kind of prowess and they've got some kind of weakness. And regardless of how you favor or feel about any one of them, pray, pray, pray earnestly that their weakness would serve as a witness for their need for Christ, not just to us, but also to their own hearts and that their prowess, their great strength would not produce a blind spot to their need for Christ when things are going well, exactly as we always have planned. We need to pray earnestly. This is us living faithfully in a fallen world. We need to pray that both of those points, both of those realities, the weakness and the prowess of our leaders point them to their personal need for Christ. If we're going to be people who display the reconciling hope of the gospel, we must be people who are praying always with gospel ends. We want to pray toward the end of the gospel. What's happening in our current political climate is not just something that's happening in the backdrop of life. The Lord has blessed us to see that this is the foreground of daily life and that God wants his church to stand firm and be available to be spirit filled, not move with favor, speak truth to power, speak truth to whoever it is, and to pray earnestly for those that both in their prowess and their weakness, that they would see their need for a true and coming king. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope that the things that you know to be true about God are translating into your daily life so that we, unlike, so that we, unlike Belshazzar, would not be moved with a false sense of security because he was immediately taken out of his role. He didn't know that his life was going to be that brief a deep sense of anxiety because he didn't know how to interpret the handwriting on the wall and a deep sense of also self-indulgent idolatry where we can misplace or displace our faith 
in things other than the one true God. Uh, again, regardless of how Tuesday fell out for you, we all have great work to do. You know, I hope that uh, the word of God is not being treated by any of us like that old owner's manual tucked away in the drawer where we only reach for it when something goes wrong. I hope that we regularly would study God's word, seek to be filled with it so that we could be interpreters of the times, so that we could be people who are filled with the spirit. I hope that we would regularly read God's word to not only just so that we can pass the theological pop quiz and recognize the sovereignty of God or the providence of God if someone happens to put it on a test, but so that we could understand how they all fit together in the function of human life. That's what the owner's manual does. It allows us to see these features, not just as static entities, but how they fit together. This is where we have to spend our time in God's word and constantly commit ourselves to moving from what we know to translating what we know about the Lord into the daily way that we live. Let's pray. Father God, I'm thankful to you for every opportunity to share and preach your word and to teach, uh, Lord God. I just pray for our nation, for our church, and for our people that we would uh, continue to step up. This is not a special occasion. It's just a, a, a time when you underline and highlight for us uh, just how sovereign you are. And I hope that each one of us can see that regardless of our sensibilities about any given party or candidate in this time. Thank you, Lord God, for your sovereign move. Now allow each of our hearts, Lord God, to find great peace, Lord God, in what you're doing. Not because we're satisfied or dissatisfied with the outcomes, but because we have found full satisfaction in you and in you alone. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Gospel Hope, and we look forward to seeing you again.